Recently, the U.S. Patent Office issued a decision that involves some of the biggest names and institutions in science. The case is about a technology that is referred to as CRISPR. What is it used in now? Every, almost everything,、uh, anything biological that has DNA will use CRISPR. I, I consider CRISPR what I call a field-specific, general-purpose technology. Um, so you'll find it being used now for bio, you know, in bacteria for biofuels. You'll find people using it. Biofuels. Yep. Yeast. Ye- you know, they'll modify、uh, use CRISPR to modify yeast to make uh,、um, uh, yogurts or or beers. Even actually, can I? You hadn't had beer. I, ha- I have. I have a demonstrative. Hold on. The, I think the more interesting question becomes: How is it that? A Nobel Prize winner, when Nobel Prize is defined a certain way in the community, then ends up with ownership of a slightly narrower portion of the pie. And so, one of the things is is to keep in mind that there's this huge context of what CRISPR is good and bad for. And so. One of the things we need to work on as a community is sort of what are the ethical boundaries we got to set up? How do we set those things up?、Um, and you know, how do we make sure we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater? Which is what happened with gene editing in the '90s, right? Where we moved a little too fast, somebody died, and then the whole field collapsed. I don't know that we get another chance after CRISPR. Did you know that the ownership of CRISPR has been in dispute? Well, basically, since its very beginning. Hey there, news peelers! Today is April first, two thousand twenty-two, and this is Adele, the host of Peel Dot News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors. Who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past? We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share. Sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the peel dot news is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. How often do we ordinary mortals, that is, those of us who don't practice patent law, review the decisions of the U.S. Patent Office? Well, news of this 84-page decision by the USPTO made it to the pages of the Wall Street Journal, and rightfully so. The case involved powerful and iconic research institutions: the Broad Institute, MIT, Harvard, UC Berkeley, and the University of Vienna. And to add to the excitement, there was also a Nobel Prize-winning scientist. This case and the case before it, yeah, there are two cases, are about CRISPR, which stands for, ready for it, 
clustered regularly interspace short palindromic repeat. Yeah, try saying that a few times. To understand the CRISPR technology and why it's even important, and not just to the scientific and business communities, but also to the general population, I spoke with Professor Samantha Zients of Stanford Law School. She's a research fellow of intellectual property and a fellow at the Center for Law and the Biosciences. Lucky for us, she has been studying CRISPR for years, and when she was getting her PhD at MIT, she presciently predicted that the work on CRISPR will get the Nobel Prize. To learn more about Professor Zients, her projects, and scholarship, visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Zients and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Zions, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I want us to talk about CRISPR technology and the CRISPR patent case. But, but before we do that, let's get some basics out of the way here. Legally speaking, how is it possible to get a patent, which is essentially a monopoly, on biological reactions in the body? Aren't they like natural processes? They belong to God, not 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 patents, right? <laughs> well, well. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and uh, to discuss this. I, I I'm such a nerd about this topic. Um, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> and and you you know your initial question is 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 exactly the the way that we start all of this. And the answer with all good things patents is well yes no. Um, so, yes no. Both. Right. So so life science patents. Uh, you know, historically, uh, you could patent a bunch of natural processes, uh, you know, going all the way back to like 1911 and Park Davis versus Mulford, right? One of, one uh-huh. of the early learned hand cases from the Supreme Court. Those learned hand, yes, right. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, they upheld patents for basically isolated and purified natural substances like insulin. Because, you know, the, the idea was, well, if we, if you as a human purified it, then it works better than whatever naturally occurred. And so we kind of said the same thing about Which gene makes patterns. sense, right? Right. Well, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, it certainly held for a long time, uh-huh. right? And then, you know, it was years later, you know, a good 70 years later that we got, you know. I'm sorry, you said seven or 70? 70, right? 70, we got okay. ruling in, in, in uh, Diamond versus Chakabarty. Which uh-huh. really opened the floodgates, right? And it says, you know, if humans have touched it and man made something, you know, then it allows for the patents of genetically modified organisms. And this could be everything from bacteria and seeds and plants and non human animals and genes, if you can purify them and, 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 and say that you've done more than just discover them. Um, well, that actually opened the floodgates, I would argue for the, what we now see today as the biotech industry. Um, and that was one of the reasons I think that, that there was so much play back in the eighties about, you know, should we be able to patent 
you know, life science and genetically modified organisms at all. Um, you know, but what started to happen is that uh, all these things started getting patented and people started getting nervous um, because of that exact question. It's like, well, but aren't genes naturally occurring? Yeah, yeah. What are we doing here? And that's actually what the most recent cases, um, people have perhaps heard them as, as molecular pathology versus myriad or Prometheus versus, or, or Mayo versus Prometheus uh, in 2012, 2013, where all of a sudden the Supreme Court said, all right, hold on, time out. <laughs> time out, okay. We have all these gene patents. It's blocking up all sorts of crazy, you know, we can't get new drugs done. Um, you know, are gene patents really something we should be allowing um and their fundamental answer was no um if you if as a scientist you have discovered the gene but not actually done any manipulation or any kind of synthetic you know created any kind of synthetic thing that was not natural to the body then it is products of nature that is the exact quote from the supreme court um and since then gene patents are not allowed uh, when you say the, their fundamental position, is that code word by you to suggest that there are exceptions that absolutely. you can just, yeah right? yeah because because and this is why it's yes and no today <laughs> because um, things like uh, what they call complementary DNA, which was specifically mentioned in Myriad, um, you know, is basically a form of synthetic DNA. It's something that was created in a lab. And, and Myriad is one of the cases you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's one of the, that's a Supreme Court case from 2013 mm -hmm. um, uh, that talked about patent eligibility. In fact, there's a whole ton of cases right around that period where we've been fighting about what should be patented at all. Um, and this one was specific to life science patents. Um, we're talking about Supreme Court and the law. Yep. But there's got to be also policy debate here right sure. <laughs> I, I say this because i can see many ethical issues about intellectual property uh, patent rights uh, for genome and biological matters right so i'm i'm taking us out of the legal forum discussion to one of policy and ethics is there is this is this an issue uh, well certainly um it and is. And I would say that, that it's not completely divorced from the law and what's going on at the Supreme Court either, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, as you might imagine, uh, the, the pharma companies and the biotech companies and also the normal tech companies have an awful lot to say about what should go on in Washington. <laughs> exactly. Um, this right? is a thing called lobbying, right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, and so... You know, obviously, the pharma companies would like to keep their patents, and and the argument on their side is, uh, you know, we need this because it is incredibly expensive, not only to develop a, a, a new drugs, so your internal R and D, but uh, the actual crazy part is, is you know, you have to also then get your medications, your diagnostic tests, your medical devices through the FDA, right? And, it, you know, because it's not completely divorced from patent law, you only get 20 years from filing now, right, for the life of your patent and to be able to earn any any of your money back on it. That's a limited and, window for profit making. That's right. It's actually and it's actually really short because it takes a long time to get stuff through the FDA. And so they're sort of like, hey, we got to 
you know, and, and it's very easy in the pharma sphere and, and, and in, in other, you know, in other folks who make medications and molecular therapies and stuff like that, um, to reverse engineer it. So the minute a generic company, you know, sees your pill, they can dissolve it, tell you what's in it and make a new version. That right? goes a uh, billion dollars worth of research, right? Right. Oof, you know, gone. And Does so, it apply to biologics and uh, other I think, I think it can. I think that's a little harder and yeah. biologics are newer. So, okay. so I think, I think that's more the research side of things. Like it's taking us forever to find a biologic that works um, and then to actually get it through FDA, who's also still learning the process. Cause again, biologics are what, maybe 10, 15 years old at most. Yeah, they really are. They're new. Right. Um, so I think that process is a little newer. Um, and so of course that takes a lot more time uh, to get it right. So that's sort of their argument. It's like, look, we, we need a little time to recover this so that we have money to invent new drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's their argument. Now, other folks are sort of like, nah, you do it anyway. And that, you know, that's a really hard counterfactual to, to prove. Um, in, in, in your profession and in your research, extensive research, have you come across um, grassroots move? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them movements sort of church opinions or, or, or sort of grassroots opinions about uh, genome and biologic or life science patents. Um, it's, well, it's almost too technical for them to get involved with. But remember during President Bush's uh, uh, administration, there was a lot of opinions about stem cell patents and stem cell things. Yeah. Well, everybody's got an opinion, right? Like, I don't actually ah, think- Thanks to social I'm- media and everyone expresses them, right? Yeah. Right. Like yeah. I love the debate, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think it's a valid one. Um, and so it's not even so much grassroots, but you'll see, you know, folks like Public Citizen or or you know other other uh, NGOs or think tanks that come out and say, well, here's the flip side, right? It's you know we don't actually have to be that technical. It's what we're oh. worried about is access, right? I see. So the problem is is uh, you know patents are a right to exclude, right? That's that's what you get when you get a patent. Uh, for the listed claims. And what people are worried about is for things that are super important, like new medications and food, right? Because, you know, we're talking specifically about health, but like a lot of these patents we're talking about covers seeds and plants. Like from Monsanto. Right. Well, Monsanto is a big issue. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I've actually, I've actually had a case against Monsanto uh, in my past life and, and, and they are, they're a tough customer. Um, and so people get worried about, you know, if these big corporations have all this power, then, you know, farmers can't grow food for, you know, company for, for countries. And as global warming occurs, how do we feed, you know, the whole world? And what are we doing to help uh, developing countries? And the same arguments come with medication. It's like if we're blocking this, quote unquote, blocking this all up, then, Fewer people have access to things they actually need. And whether that be physical access to, um, you know, the drug or whether that's just the, we can price so high that it's functionally not accessible. That's sort of the counter argument. And this I is see. Why we do this. for sake of clarification, I just want to make sure when you said you had a case against Monsanto, it wasn't you, right? If it, if you were suing oh. Monsanto, I'd call No, no, not me, per- not me personally, but uh, in a past life, I used to do patent litigation. I see. Uh, why don't we take a short break and then talk about the history, the history of breakthrough life science technologies and this question, why is CRISPR so important? 
We'll be right back. Did you know that patents do not give you the right to make a product, use a product, or sell a product? If not, then what the heck are patents good for anyway? In Season 1, Episode 17, Mr. Stephen Pepe and Dr. Sam Brenner take us through the history of patents, how the idea for patenting came from Italy to England and then to the U.S., and how Americans stole technology from England and how much the patent system has contributed to the U.S. economy. For your convenience, the link for that episode is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Professor Zions. Professor Zions, what are some examples of breakthrough innovations in life sciences that we were talking about in the previous segment? Sure. Well, there are a whole bunch, but I'll, I'll just, for sake of time, I'll bring up with a, a couple and kind of- Some big ones, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the biggest ones that people like to point to um, that it was super important, but it was never patented is penicillin, right? So Alexander Fleming, you know- uh, you know, He never patented he never patented it. Um, it was it was you know a serendipitous discovery in his lab, right? Um, and uh, he opted not to patent it, uh, and and for a couple of reasons. I mean, certainly it was during wartime, uh, you know, uh, and so uh, it was deemed not necessary. But was I that think World that, War One or World War Two? Uh, World War One. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he was sort of like, nah, there, there was a bunch of complications going on at the time. They wanted to make it super accessible. However, if you, 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 uh, wind back the history a little bit, and I was reading some of my colleagues, uh, you know, uh, you know, work, uh, Glenn Cohen has, has, has been noted as saying that, you know, the problem is the way he had isolated penicillin, it actually might not have been patentable. Um, oh, do you think he knew that? It wasn't defined as enough. Yeah. So, but because they never tried, then it's not easy to tell whether or not it actually would have worked as a patent. But yeah. the truth is, they never did. Um, and that's one of the things people love to point to. Oh, you don't always need patents. You know, things work and life will find a did way. Did he make money? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know so. either. I actually. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think so. But, but I, that wasn't the point. That right? wasn't the point. Yeah. Right? That wasn't the point that now. What I will say is people who made synthetic versions of penicillin then made a lot of money. <laughs> At least right up front. Nobody's making money on penicillin now. Yeah. It's actually one of, as an aside, this is one of the big problems we have is it's not attractive uh, monetarily for people to make um, antibiotics, right? Huge problem because a lot of the antibiotics are becoming, uh, or a lot of the germs are becoming antibiotic resistant. So, you know, that, that there's there is an instance where even if you could patent, there are still other, you know, concepts that, you know, need to force people into creating things that are valuable to us, but maybe not to them. There's not profit at the other end. I know, I know we're getting a little bit sideways, but it's, yeah, sorry. I'll, I'll just, no, no, I'll just add this. There's been a lot of work on super antibiotics uh, that, and, and I know they had worked on that especially in India because of just the prevalence of all sorts of infections, but I don't know where that has gone. Um, you said you had a couple examples. Yeah, of no, uh, but one of the more current ones, and let's go back to, you know, talking about the seventies and eighties. Yeah. 
when really this this field of genetic engineering um, and DNA manipulation really came about. And the first major one that you're going to hear about all the time is recombinant DNA, our, our DNA, right? Um, this is one of the biggest biotech innovations uh, that allowed us to actually splice data or sli splice DNA and understand how it works. Um, and this is uh, one of those wonderful cases. It's one of, one of the major examples uh, that parallel CRISPR uh, that we'll get to in a little bit, where two people uh, at Stanford and UCSF, you know, Cohen and Boyer, got the patent, but Paul Berg, Got the Nobel Prize, and it's not an unusual thing in this field. Yeah, this, this was patented. And it's not know, unusual. It's not. Oh There's wow, I'd love to talk about that, but no, 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 this, this happens. But um, I want to just before we get to that segment, what the heck is CRISPR? <laughs> like, what is CRISPR? <laughs> so, so I would say that CRISPR is probably the most important biological uh, innovation since PCR. Um, and that's almost a, 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 that's almost a, a direct paraphrase from Jennifer Doudna, who won the Nobel Prize in CRISPR. Oh, wow. um, and my, the people I have spoken to in labs at MIT and Berkeley and Harvard would all agree. Um, and CRISPR, what CRISPR is, and I'll give you my, my, my you know, uh, two minute spiel, is a DNA editing technology that basically consists fundamentally of a single strand of DNA and an enzyme, which basically acts as a pair of molecular scissors, mm -hmm. right? And the single strand of DNA, you can program to be whatever it is that you want it to be. So if you want to tell this little piece of DNA, go find the BRCA1 gene, which we know what, what, look, what it, that looks like. You will encode that you will stick an enzyme called Cas9 onto the back of it. You will package the whole thing up, and then you will send it into the nucleus of the cell for the, you know, for to look at the target DNA, uh, you know, uh, that you're looking for. And what the CRISPR will, the CRISPR tool will do. Remember, just guide RNA enzyme is it will run down all of uh, the DNA in that target cell until it finds what you told it to look for. And so you can think about it as um, a word process, you know, a find and replace for DNA rather than your word processor. So this is very- Is this an actual technology or are you talking science fiction? This is scary. No, I mean, wow. No, totally real. Totally real. So, so like the way I like to think about it, like fixing ideas is what I like to tell people is like, if you think about your, your word document on your computer, Right. If you, you want to look do for control word, F and look for something, yeah. basically, if you're, you do control F and say, say you want to look for the word abstract, right. Uh -huh. Then you type in abstract abstract in this case is the equivalent to the single strand DNA, uh -huh. right. Cause that's, that's the word you're looking for. And then the uh, replace function will just kind of run through and find it. Right. So it'll, you know, run through your document and that's the equivalent of the target DNA. It will find all the instances and then the cut feature will cut it out, right? And here, the cut feature in the DNA context is Cas9. Um, and it's gone. It'll just drop out. It's a, it's a single, it's a double strand break, 
which means that the, it, the cell can then use its own mechanism to repair itself. You don't need to do anything else super fancy. Now, now this is a, is this what we call biologics? So or, not, ex- not exactly. This is not like a pharma thing, right? No, um, I would, this is closer. Like if we're going to talk about uh, medicines, this is closer to gene therapy. Yeah. Right? Um, it's a form of, you know, uh, modifying the genome of a naturally occurring organism. Right. So say, you know, one of, one of the ways I like to talk about it that I think makes it a little easier for, for folks to understand is for generations, we have been splicing plants together to get different kinds of apples. Oh right? yeah. That's been going on for a long time. Yeah. Yep. But how do they do it? Right. They, they, they literally take parts of the tree, right. And try to cut in, uh, you know, uh, different parts of the tree so that different, uh, different flowers get pollinated and then you get a new apple. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Or, you know, beans or, or similar, right. That's where we started. Or geraniums or, or what geraniums have you. Geraniums or yeah. whatever all else. Right. Or like we're literally splicing. This is, stuff. this is, is this the sort of the miniature genomic version of that? Yes, except that I don't need to go through the actual trouble of pollinating flowers to see what I get. I can actually change the genetics in the seeds and in that generation get uh, the new apple that I was looking for. So what what in this process that you're sharing with me is patented? Well, everything that you're sharing with me seems like it happens naturally. Well, it does. Um, and that's why CRISPR is actually, we use this, it, it, annoyingly enough, we use the same term to mean two different things. Right? Oh, that's so, helpful. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Oh, so, so, so uh, let, me, let me try to make this a little clear uh, uh, for, your, for the audience here. Uh, so CRISPR is initially a discovery. CRISPR is a naturally occurring process in bacteria that they have been developing for billions of years. It it's is, not patentable, right? It, that is not patentable. Yeah. yeah. Right? Okay. So, so, you know, that is their immune system. It is how they survive viral attacks. Literally. Okay. What Jennifer Dowd and Emmanuel Charpentier did in their seminal work in 2012. Now, no, CRISPR is less than 10 years old. They figured out that using this discovery, that instead of using it just to repel virus attacks in bacteria, they can program that guide RNA to look for anything. And that they can actually put the whole system together in as one piece, which bacteria don't necessarily do. Um, And those two things combined now is a man-made invention because it is modifiable. And, 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 and nature does not do this naturally. I see. And, and it's more focused on specific uh, finds that you ask it to go fetch, right? That's right. And, and it's, it, it really has to do with not so much the combination, but the fact that you can modify, um, you know, that you can modify the, the, the guide RNA, the single strand DNA um, to whatever you want. Um, and it's extraordinarily accurate, um, you know, and put it together with an enzyme in one package. So it becomes what I call modifiable CRISPR. 
And modifiable CRISPR is the tool that we are now using um, in the in the bio field, and it has sort of replaced all other genetic tools that it were in existence previously. So there used to be things called like talons and, and zinc fingers that allowed us to sort of change the genes before. So it's not like we couldn't, but this makes it easier, faster, and allows us to work in organisms we've never been able to before, including humans. What is it used in now? Every, almost everything. Uh, anything biological that has DNA will use CRISPR. I, I consider CRISPR what I call a field-specific general purpose technology. Um, so you'll find it being used now for bio, you know, in bacteria for biofuels, you'll find people using it. In biofuels. Yeast. Yep. Yeast, ye you know, they'll modify, uh, use CRISPR to modify yeast to make, uh, um, uh, yogurts or, or beers even actually, can I, you had mad beer. I, ha I have, I have a demonstrative. Hold on. <clears throat> this is one of my favorite things ever. This is actually crisper oh, beer. Oh my! Uh, oh, I love that crisper beer. This was made by Temescal Brewing uh, a couple a, a year and a half ago. Um, out Could of you hold it up again? Hell's Lager. Did I say that correctly? It, it is a Hell's Lager. Yeah. Hell's Lager. Oh my goodness! Look at a can too. Isn't that hilarious? Hey, to to all of you who thinks who think uh, science is for nerds have this the crisper pa uh, the, the crisper beer this is awesome yep. so so you can use it for that you can use it in uh you know plants you can use it in livestock so there's you know histories of you know being how about vaccines uh vaccines potentially too and certainly is, right is now the covid vaccine using that technology uh, they're trying and they haven't MR. been successful there, but, uh, for the current, uh, COVID, what, what they are using CRISPR for is the diagnostic test. Wow. So there's been an EUA approved, uh, I think it's through mammoth biosciences, but don't quote me on that. Um, that, that, uh, basically will use a different form of CRISPR. So, so CAS9 CRISPR, and this is going to be important when we talk about the case, mm -hmm. is only one form of the technology. One form, so there. You mean there's other types of technology, oh, yeah. and hence so, different patents. Oh, yep, whole bunch of other ones. Um, and so uh, uh, this one is still the same functional concept, right? It's a guide RNA that tells me where to go, um, you know, in the target DNA, and an enzyme. But the enzyme changes. So, so for diagnostic tests, we have enzymes that are now called Cas12 and 13. Instead of acting as molecular scissors that cut out the gene that you want gone. Instead, basically what they do is they, they send up like little flares and say, uh -huh. hey, I found, I found the gene. And so they're great for screening, like for cancers. They're oh, wow. great for diagnostic tests. Um, and that's still CRISPR. It's still the same functional technology, but um, it's a different use. I can see opportunities for a whole heck of a lot, heck of, a lot of um, licensing where yeah. university professors that are not uh, in uh, in a private setting actually do the research and then they just license it to companies for, for, for them to make all sorts of therapeutics or diagnostics. Um, we'll be back after a short break to, to finally talk about latest CRISPR patent case and ask how can a patent be taken away from a Nobel laureate of all people, right? We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. 
For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you! Professor Zions, please tell us about this latest CRISPR patent case. It captured the attention of business news media like the Wall Street Journal. So it's got to be big. What is it about? Well, so actually, the current case is actually the second one. So the second I'm, one. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to go, I, 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 if you'll indulge me, I'm actually going to go back to 2014, mm-hmm. um, where uh Basically, the ownership of the CRISPR technology has been in dispute since basically its inception. Um, and there are a couple of weird quirks. Which was 2012? Uh, right. So, so, okay. so, so just quick timeline for everyone. Mm-hmm. CRISPR was, was first published in June 2012 by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier. They are, in my opinion... The founders of CRISPR, they earned the Nobel Prize. Uh, and I should say modifiable CRISPR, right? This is mm-hmm. the tool we're using, not the bacteria immune system. Um, <laughs> just to be clear. Uh, so we're not, we're not, we're not talking about patenting nature here. No, we cannot patent nature, yeah. but we can modify, patent the things we modify from nature. There you go. So, yeah. So, so, so basically what happened is this very weird construct where, so basically the first paper that, Doudna and Charpentier wrote was was more than a proof of concept, but generally a proof of concept that CRISPR works. And they did their experiments in a test tube and showed that it works for in there and for bacteria, right? But what they did not do in their first paper was show that you can also make it work in mammals or other eukaryotes, so mice and fruit flies and zebrafish and that kind of stuff. The people who did that did it six months later at MIT in Broad, um, and that's that's Feng Chang and Feng Zhang and his lab, along with uh, George Church, um, and and those are this was actually happening at MIT while I was getting my PhD <laughs> right as I was starting, so that's actually how I got into this is because is it was there when I was studying this kind of stuff. Um, and was so, it exciting even back then, or was oh it yeah, yeah, I. Nice. I, I uh, as a quick aside, you know, when I first saw what was going on here, I was talking to uh, somebody who did synthetic biology in one of the other labs, and he brought up CRISPR as like this, you know, just absolute explosion in opportunities. And I'm an economist. And so I heard this and I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be the coolest thing to study. And my advisors were like, what the heck is this? Like, it's going to go away. And I said, no, no, it's going to win the Nobel Prize. Oh, you're a person. I said this in 2014. And they're like, all right, fine. If you can find something to go for it. Um, <laughs> not saying. So, so. Um, you should be thinking of stocks. I know, right? You know, yeah. not that. Um, but, but the thing that was going on here, right? So, so the field of use actually is really important in this case, which is why I'm spending some time on it because what happened here is that within that six month period, both 
Jennifer Doudna and her team and Feng Zhang and his team filed patent applications on their specific version of CRISPR. Um, These are parallel events almost. Yes. I, I see them as parallel events, right? So there, okay. are, there is such a thing as simultaneous invention. We saw this with, like, say, the light bulb and mm -hmm. the telephone. Mm -hmm. um, it does happen. And so, uh, and usually it happens in a circumstance where there are people who, um, you know, are paying enough attention to the general information in their field and there is enough of it and there's enough connections where they start to say, oh, wait, this might be something we can, we can use to solve a problem that the field has in general. Um, and CRISPR was just one of those circumstances. It was like, you know, we found, we figured out how the mechanism naturally works. And then so folks immediately started to think, oh, can we modify this? Could you think of all the things that we could do with that? Um, and so people started tinkering in the field that they were in, right? And that's important too. So, yeah. so Jennifer Downey is a molecular biologist. So of course she's going to start in test tubes. Feng Cheng, though, his lab deals in eukaryotes and other mammals, right? So there's no reason he wouldn't start anywhere but there. He already had the knowledge. So basically, they both put out papers. They both had, you know, applications. Doudna's application is actually earlier than Feng Zhang's, but the Broad is very savvy, right? And so the Broad actually put in for an expedited review in the U.S. Patent Office, uh, which is something you can do. Um, and got their patent first. And so, and that was issued in about 2014, I think. Um, and that kicked off the first interference case. So, so Broad got their patent on what I will call mammalian CRISPR-Cas9. Um, uh, uh, just for clarification's sake, Broad is an institution oh. that is a combination of several different institutions no. or no? No, no, Broad is its own institution. So, so it's a it's it's basically um, a research institution that was set up in in uh, Kendall Square uh, mm -hmm. in Boston. It is literally across the street from MIT. Yeah, so it has so it's in very strong associations with with the the scientists at MIT. So a lot of people who who work at MIT also work at Broad. But Broad, you know, is most probably most famous now for being headed by Eric Lander. I see. I right? see. Yeah. So, so who, 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 you know, has also been in the news lately. So um, I'll just leave it at that. Um, you know, so, so another podcast, another podcast. <laughs> um, so that, you know, so these are two major institutions, but Broad uh -huh. is known for trying to develop and commercialize its technology. So it knows what it's doing. You know, not that Berkeley doesn't, but, but, you know, Broad knew what it had. Um, and so they were granted the patent first. Of course, Berkeley at that point went, hold on, time out. You know, we have an earlier application on the same thing. Yeah. Claim to be the same thing. And that's where um, patent law is a little arcane. So prior to March 2013, um, the U.S. was a first to invent system. So as long as you could prove that you have lab notebooks or some other evidence that you got what you were claiming to work before the other person, then you actually are owner of the patent. And the way we adjudicated that was through an internal process at the patent office called an interference proceeding. 
do people still use lap notebooks in this digital well, age? Well, I mean, maybe not handwritten, although yeah. um, if you look at the background documentation for the current case, Jennifer Doudna's lab notebooks are handwritten. Oh, so wow. Still do that. Oh, there's some really cool scientific artifacts now out there in the public because of this. So nice. Cool. Nice. Um, but so we have this very weird artifact. We don't really have interference proceedings anymore because after March 2013, we moved to a first to file system like the rest of the world. Um, and so we wouldn't have this argument over priority anymore. So the patent system in the U.S. changed yes. to comport more with the European patent system. For the rest of the world, right? The rest of the world. We were okay. confusing the heck out of everybody. However, the applications we're talking about in CRISPR were filed before March 2013. So they before were- Before the system change. And that's why we have this mess. So Berkeley was allowed to file an interference proceeding against Broad and MIT saying, we already have this patent. And the first interference case was arguing about who owns CRISPR in general, right? Is, is mammalian CRISPR-Cas9 obvious given that there is a, a, there is a already a CRISPR patent in general, right? And that was what the first case was about. And the patent office basically determined, um, no, they're different. There is no obviousness in fact. Um, and so they did what we call sort of splitting the baby. And so mm -hmm. Jennifer Dowden and company got their patent and MIT got theirs. And they're just on different, you know, they're basically they're just in different areas. So, so different fields of use to borrow technical. Yeah, sort of. I want to be a little careful about that because this is what creates some confusion is Jennifer Dowden is, is sort of a general concept, right? So she, she is the inventor of CRISPR. Um, she just hasn't shown that, you know, unequivocally that it works in eukaryotes, or at least we're not, we weren't sure at that point, you know, they, okay. the, the patent office basically just said, look, they're just two different things. So, you know, eukaryotic CRISPR requires another step, basically, and isn't obvious. And my own research actually sort of backs that up, where I can actually show through, um, you know, who was using CRISPR at the time and the research that was coming out, there's a massive delay in mammalian CRISPR work because it just took time to get things to, you know, actually, you know, be successful. Um, you know, it's not just that the publication process is longer for, 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 you know, mammalian papers. It's just, you know, hey, it's a lot harder to get CRISPR to work in a cell that has a nucleus versus one that doesn't. <laughs> and we're still um, yeah. running into so uh, let, let me see if I can uh, draw this analogy. Having a general CRISPR patent is kind of like having a patent on flight. But from there, you could have thousands. In fact, we have had thousands of patents since the Wright brothers. Having, you still can have a patent on a jet engine. It's, it's, it's entirely, so that's the sort of thing that we're talking about. Maybe yeah. someone owns a, patent on general concept of CRISPR in, in, in a million application, but it doesn't mean that someone else can't get it for a, a narrower yes. application, <laughs> which they have to prove that it works, I guess. Well, and that's now the second case. Ah. So here's what happened. And this is why I had to go through the first case. So the first uh -huh. case said, you know, is mammalian CRISPR different from CRISPR in a test tube in bacteria? Right. 
That's what it asked. Mm -hmm. And the answer was no. And the federal circuit upheld that. And they said, or, or sorry, the answer is yes. And the federal circuit uh, upheld that. Okay. Um, so, and the federal circuit is a specialized court that appellate court that reviews patents. That's correct. And, yes. and they, they do the appeals from the patent office as well, not just from the federal district courts. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay. We thought we were done at that point, but in the interim, um, uh, Berkeley and Jennifer Doudna and her team had issued another set of patent applications that explicitly said, Hey, we did eukaryotic CRISPR too. Um, Not only did we do the general, the, the wider one, the larger one, the broader one, if you will, but we also did a narrower one in eukaryotic cells. Right. We, we, we've shown, we've shown that. Um, and that's what makes the, the second interference really interesting because the second interference was not brought by Broad or MIT. It was brought by the patent office. Because all of a sudden, when they saw these oh, applications, wow. they were like, oh, wait, there's a problem here, especially in light of uh, the first ruling. So they brought the second interference. And oh, wow. They initiated it. Oh, yeah. Totally, totally strange. Like, like it does happen, but not very often. It's not a common um, thing. Okay. And so, uh, but it was them trying to, like, correct how this is going to deal. So the next case basically then focuses on the true question of priority. So it's not about obviousness now, really. It's about who invented eukaryotic CRISPR-Cas9 first. And that's mm -hmm. what they've been fighting um, during the second interference. Um, and there are a couple of other interference cases brought by third parties that have kind of been stayed until this one was, was um, adjudicated. But the decision that just came out basically determined that despite all the lab notes and, and, and everything else that Jennifer Doudna and her team produced, um, they didn't see enough evidence to show that Jennifer Doudna and her team got eukaryotic CRISPR to work before MIT, the MIT team did. Um, and what uh, my friends and I kind of argue about whether that's, that's appropriate or not, and whether it was correct, because, yeah. you know, you don't, need to prove something works um, in order to get a patent. There are plenty of patents out there that don't quite work. Yeah. Um, but you do have to be able to get all the steps reasonably right. And, and so I think, you know, basically what the, what the court came out and said was, mm, we don't think you did. Uh, and MIT has really shown this. And so what ends up happening is MIT gets to keep their eukaryotic CRISPR-Cas9 patent. Jennifer Doudna gets to keep her patent from the original um, interference, that first case. The general her, patent, if you yeah, will. Yeah, she, she still has that one, right? Like, that's not gone. So, so the, the, you know, that, that she's got. The problem now becomes all of those new applications that they filed, those aren't going to happen. Um, because they are on something narrower and, 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 and this case and, settled and, and, that. And that's right. And the court, or sorry, the patent office said, no, you didn't do that. MIT did. So it's, it's a slightly different set of patents that all just got invalidated, uh, on, on Berkeley's side. There's um, just some weirdness here um, oh, yeah. from the sort of the general population, those that are not really, you know, super into patents i mean how can you not be patents I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but many people can may come and say hey 
how can you take away a patent from a Nobel laureate? I mean, but that's exactly what's happened. Well, no, it's not. We didn't take away her patent. She still has it, right? She has the general one, not the... She has has the general one. Um, So, so, you know, she she does still have that. Um, But what... But basically, they didn't really take it away either because these are applications. They never had patents, right? Um, You know, they weren't granted. Uh, this was this was an interference to see whether they should have been granted. I see. Um, I see. Against against a patent that already was. So MIT Broad's patent was already granted. Uh, it was more these these other applications. What do we do with them? Um, the, I think the more interesting question becomes: How is it that a Nobel Prize winner, when Nobel Prize is defined a certain way in the community, then? ends up with ownership of a slightly narrower portion of the pie, right? So basically the Nobel Prize is for CRISPR-Cas9. It doesn't matter what the field of use is, right? Like, you know, if you read the Nobel Prize, uh, you know, uh, history and background of it, they talk about all the things that you can do with CRISPR, which is what we started with too. What can we do with CRISPR? All yeah. sorts of things, um, you know, and that's what she got the prize for. And it's absolutely right. Like, I, I, I do not question the Nobel Prize at all. Um, in fact, I, I kept saying, I told you, like, back in 2014, I was like, they're getting in the Nobel Prize for this. <laughs> you were clairvoyant so, back then. Um, uh, you know, but, you know, what happened, you know, what happened in the patent sense is they're sort of like, no, they're narrower fields of use. And so that's more the question is, like, should Doudna have gotten and Berkeley have gotten the mammalian CRISPR one because they invented CRISPR in general? And... Mm, uh, there's some funniness there, but at the same time, from an innovation standpoint, I'm not always sure that that's a terrible thing, right? It may be that many people that win the Nobel Prize, they've actually have had brilliant discoveries. They may not have had inventions, right? I'm not talking about this specific case. I'm talking generally. Absolutely. Some things Nobel Prize worthy are not actually patentable, right? Although I would argue lately that's less true. Um, you know, most things are our inventions. Uh, yeah. But, you know, and sometimes, you know, people choose not to patent it. Uh, a lot of times they do, though. Um, and, and like I said, like as in the case of recombinant DNA, the person who gets the Nobel isn't always the person who gets the patent. Um, especially if, one, if the Nobel side isn't interested in, in, in patenting, which does happen, too. Like not... You know, especially prior to uh, the Bay Dole Act in 1980, uh, professors at universities actually didn't have a lot of incentive to patent. Um, But that's changed now. That has changed since then because universities have become patent machines. And we're going to talk about that um, in the next segment, our last segment. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Zions as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Zions, I have a question that may seem curious to some people. 
But I think it's appropriate to ask it here because after we talked about CRISPR, it, it, it fits. Uh, do large institutions contribute to or impede research in life sciences? Now, you know, we talked about the Broad Institute, MIT, your alma mater, Harvard, UC Berkeley. They were all sort of involved with, with CRISPR to some extent. So um, my, my answer is not limited to CRISPR, just generally speaking. What do you think? Well, so this goes back to the question of access, right, that we were talking about at the, at the, at the top of this podcast. Um, and, well, I'm an economist, right? The answer is going to be it depends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Will so, the inflation so, go high or go low? It depends. So, so I think functionally the answer is, uh, you know, they contribute, Right. Okay. The vast majority of innovations, life saving technologies, new cool stuff. Google comes out of MIT, Harvard, Berkeley, Stanford. Right. Like, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's why we have elite universities. Um, they're extraordinarily well funded. And so it allows people the time they they need um, to not necessarily chase funds so much as you know, be able to develop all the new cool things and go chase after new ideas. And, and I do think functionally, you know, the culture of scientists is still to be pretty open, right? So, so even in the CRISPR context, you know, even though we're talking about patents today, this is all about commercialization, right? There is no evidence that I've seen so far that the patents are actually impeding innovation from a research perspective, right? We talked about uh, briefly about all the new yeah. CAS, not, you know, the, all the new CAS enzymes that are coming out. The reason I'm being really specific about CAS9 versus, you know, any other CAS enzyme um, is because the patents only cover CAS, CAS9. And only CAS9. So if you have some kind of combination, if you found a new enzyme, like all this did was potentially, you know, trigger a rush of people trying to find new enzymes and design arounds so that they can keep going. But no one stopped working or researching on CRISPR, even though in the U.S. there isn't really a research exemption. But nobody's going to go sue a university for trying out new things with a tool. They Talk use. about bad PR, right? right well, bad PR. And, <laughs> okay, you, you and I both did litigation. Yeah. You don't litigate when there's no money. Exactly. Why would you? What's the business incentive? Right. There's no business incentive. Everybody looks terrible. So no, 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 no. Right. That's not going to happen. And so people all over the world, you know, have been inventing in CRISPR, trying it out, creating new patents. There are no less than, you know, 5,000 CRISPR patent families by the end of 2018 alone. Oh, wow. Why? Right. That's from my own research. Uh, and so, you know, it's not like this is going anywhere. So, so it's, it, so yes, I think, I think large institutions fundamentally, you know, are the main contributor um, because a lot of them too work hand in hand with a lot of the pharma companies. They are responsible for an awful lot of the spinoffs, mm -hmm. especially in places like Kendall Square or Silicon Valley that actually have an entrepreneurial environment so that, you know, new biotech companies can, you know, be supported by venture capital um, and by, you know, the wonderful clusters of innovation that, you know, surround those areas. Like there's a reason everybody flocks to Kendall Square if you want to start up a biotech company. Um, you know, how so about, how about um, 
patent trolls. They're large institutions, and many of them, especially, um, I compare it to like 25 years ago. If you look at now, some of them are extremely sophisticated and well-funded. Absolutely. Um, so do you think they contribute, or do they represent the small guy, or are they just trolls? Well, I want to be, be a little careful about patent trolls in the bio, bio context. Right? Why? Why be careful in this context? Well, because they don't operate as much here, right? Bio uh, or patent trolls tend to hang out more in the actual, like, straight tech space, right? This is AI and IT and and all this other kind of stuff. And I have a paper with uh, with Mark Lemley recently that came out that that you know talks about patent eligibility and sort of where some of these these NPEs are showing up. Uh, and MP is a non-practicing entity. Um, that is what I prefer to call versus a troll. Trolls, because trolls is a little pejorative. <laughs> um, well, and there's no there's no consistent definition of it, so so yeah. I want to be a little careful. But you know, I know what you mean. Um, but what you do is 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 you know people who misuse the patent system put it that way, um, by not producing anything. And instead it was just, you know, licensing and, or, you know, trying to sue people to get licenses, um, you know, tend to need patents that, you know, are pretty flexible, often are rather narrow, but enough to block, um, and, uh, don't require like a lot of work, <laughs> you know, to get off the ground. So if you take a look, you don't actually see a lot of non-practicing entities that are trying to block up biotech innovations. Those are I mean, a lot of work to develop yeah. technology versus like a, one of the, some of these um, uh, technologies that we've been talking about, they may take several years and hundreds of millions of dollars. Exactly. Whereas, whereas, you know, and, and those are, those are patents that are actually harder to pick up too. Right, I mean, a lot of the "quote unquote" trolls actually buy patents from other people, often defunct companies. Yeah. And the truth is that you know, yes, biotech companies go under all the time, but a lot of them just get acquired, right, by the pharma companies. Now, yeah, sometimes for just their IP. Even. You know, are acting yeah. like trolls—that's a different question, right? <laughs> um, but but I think it's a lot harder in this space. So so I personally, um, and again, this is just an opinion. I don't actually have a you know solid evidence to say it won't happen. But I'm less worried about trolls in this context because of all the things that have to happen um, in order for a medicine to get made. I also think you know the PR issue around uh, you know blocking up medications. It, you know, will, you know, and the fact that everybody's looking really hard at right now at what is even patent eligible um, would make trolls maybe a little more wary of playing in this space. That makes um, actually a lot of sense. Yeah, both uh, economic and PR as you. Um, yeah. Well, they, they have a lot more attention on them than, than they already do. And uh, trust me, that's not what they want. <laughs> if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about CRISPR after after everything we already talked about, what would it be? Well, it's basically this is a technology that really has the potential to change our lives. And, and I'm not being hyperbolic, right? And so uh, one of the things we haven't talked about, but that comes up a lot is the ethical implications of it, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I want folks to, to, to sort of, you know, keep in mind the broader context, right? So, you know, it's not about 
CRISPR babies. And it's not about, you know, uh, you know, as I like to joke, when I talk to people about this, they say the same thing you did. It's like, is that real or is that science fiction? And then they go to Gattaca real fast. <laughs> We're never getting there, right? CRISPR is only as But we got to CRISPR beer. We did get to CRISPR beer. So, yeah. but that's a good thing, right? And that's a good so, thing. It is. Yeah. Right. And it, and, and it'll, it, you know, it, it has the potential to, you know, really save problems that may come up with global warming. You know, we can create drought resistant crops. We can create new medicines. We that's might awesome. be able to solve genetic problems we understand in living humans without even having to go down the genetic gene embryo mm -hmm. route. Right. So that's yeah. what we're working on even now. And so one of the things is, is to keep in mind, there's this huge context of what CRISPR is good and bad for. And so one of the things we need to work on as a community is sort of what are the ethical boundaries we got to set up? How do we set those things up? Um, and, you know, how do we make sure we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, which is what happened with gene editing in the 90s, right, where we moved a little too fast, somebody died, and then the whole field collapsed. I don't know that we get another chance after CRISPR, like this might, you know, and, and so we want to be very careful about making sure that we're using it responsibly, we're using it correctly, um, but that we don't impede the innovation that's that 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 is. Um, Are there any um, ethical monitoring bodies uh, when it comes so, to CRISPR? So, uh, is, is the industry moving slower, if you will? So well, so there there aren't any like actual bodies, although there are, uh, like Jennifer Doudna is leading up, um, you know, the call among scientists to try to figure out what are the ethical bounds. I know the WHO is sort of trying to work around that too. We just don't have anything quite solid yet. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, you know, because this is so new and it's moving so quickly, I mean, I mean yeah. that's the other thing to impart is, again, this is less than 10 years old and we already have successful clinical trials. Name That's another field like that, right? Yeah. Um, and so to move that quickly was something that's so important. Um, a lot of people just spent a lot of time reacting to it. And I now think we have a little bit of breathing room to act. Um, Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, Professor Zions, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the PL.News. 
repealed in use for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the Peel.news.